Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. It wouldn't be accurate to classify the hobby of laser collecting as burgeoning, and there are reasons for that. Compare lasers to postage stamps. Lasers are sizable space occupiers, where an argon-ion laser may be hard-pressed to fit neatly on a side table, stamps fold neatly into an album that can be tucked away on a bookshelf. Give or take, a high-power semiconductor laser is a $12,000 investment. These days, a newly issued forever stamp is about 58 cents. And then, of course, there's the issue of safety. A mishap with a laser is apt to bring consequences beyond a paper cut. With all this in mind, it was still a surprise to learn that the laser-collecting community is really a small one. And for this reason, it didn't take us long at all, you might say the process was ultra-fast, to be able to put our finger on the pulse of this community. A collector here and an enthusiast there is very much the status quo. The lack of prominent collectors makes the agglomerations of those who do proclaim their love of the light source that much more impressive. Today on All Things Photonics, we introduce you to one of these collectors. His name is Bob Hess. And to your laser pointer and cat toy, Bob Hess raises you his collection of 500 lasers and countless other laser materials and holograms. The time is right for us to be speaking with Hess. After decades of confining his growing stock of lasers to his house and personal storage spaces, we touch a bit on the floor plan of Hess's home in our interview. Hess has launched an exhibit called Vintage Lasers and Holograms. The celebration of the first 60 years of the laser industry features nearly 200 lasers from around the world on display near Hess's home in the Phoenix area. The exhibit is also a celebration of Hess's own journey, from self-described starving artist to a long-standing member of the global community of holographers. Hess's day job as the director of holography at Satori Optics ties in nicely with the hobby that takes on a central theme of our interview. Our conversation begins with a trip back in time, as we begin our own quest not to own 500 lasers, but to understand how someone does. Here is Director of Holography at Satori Optics, Bob Hess, with news editor Jake Saltzman. I've always uh, liked old things. Uh, I tend to not throw things away, so that started the path. I'm a laser technician, photonics technician and a holographer. And uh, for the first 15 years of my life, I was a starving artist doing it. So I had to be creative and hang on to everything I could and scrounge things. So in the mid 80s, I scrounged an old laser and hung on to it for a while, you know, and it just kind of grew from there. I'm also a single guy. So if you have space uh, available, it gets filled with things like that. Tell us about your collection. I, I know I, I'm not uh, stretching the truth when I say one of the world's leading collectors. Uh, you're able to have an exhibit, an exhibition on, uh, and you certainly have space and you use it. Tell us about the collection, what's in it, and how sizable is it? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty big. There, there's about 500 lasers in the collection now, probably another 500 uh, related accessories and like power meters and uh, orphan power supplies, that sort of thing, and components like uh, raw diodes or plasma tubes or things that actually go into the laser. There's another 500 publications, uh, another 600 or so 
holograms because it's my own career plus the ones that I've collected over the years. So it's pretty big. Some people have dogs, some people have cats, some people have raw diodes, I understand. Tell us, I want you to set the scene for us if you can. I, I can't imagine you walk in and, you know, there's the kitchen, there's the femtosecond laser, there's the bathroom, there's the eczema laser. That, that can't be true, is it? Pretty much it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I was, I was in San Jose in a very small house when I started the collection. So I was limited to small early lasers. But when I moved to Phoenix uh, eight years ago, um, I had much more space in the house I had to get. And so I stopped along the way and, uh, and picked up a bunch from uh, Brian Bohan at Cambridge Lasers and Fremont. He has a, he had a bunch of old big ones and and Bob Arkin at Holo Spectra had a bunch of big old ones I stopped and picked up and uh, and I've made a few trips around the country picking things up over the years so I filled pretty much filled up the house. So you're a photonics guy, in the right? Room, the garage is full. Everything was. Full. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the garage has to be probably the first to to go, so to speak. Um, you're a photonics <laughs> technician. You're a a lasers guy, but lasers aren't toys. They're immensely interesting, but they're not toys. They're uh, they're expensive, industrial in many cases items. So beyond the simple motivation to build it bigger with regards to your collection, what's been the motivation to collect these materials, components, and devices? Well, originally, um, I had a few old lasers from the 80s. But then around 2006, I was in a position where I thought, oh, I need a new hobby. So I started to collect holograms, but I couldn't really find old holograms. Uh, and I started running into old lasers. And I ran into one that was a, a, from 1962, a pulsed ruby laser that was still operational. So I thought, I'm going to put my hands on that and make a few holograms with it and experience what they did back then uh, with a basic laser. And then I'll find the, the museum or whatever, wherever it should be after I play with it for a few years. So I did that for a couple of years. And then it was around 2009, the 50th anniversary of the laser was looming in 2010. So I thought, well, I'll see how old this one is and, and uh, did some research and I also wanted to identify the original laser that was used by uh, Leith and Upatniks to make the first hologram. People say it was, well, they, it's hard to find what the actual hardware was. So I had an interest in doing that. And I wanted to document the early development of lasers as well. And uh, so I did that. I put together a, a small group for the 50th anniversary. But around that time in the next few years, then I started running into other old ones. And then it became about uh, representing each type of laser in the collection and each maker of lasers, you know, from the 60s and 70s. Uh, after I moved to the Phoenix area and it got bigger, uh, now it's a, really about the rare pieces that I really know are out there, like a Spectrophysics Model 140, a RF excited argon laser. I'd love to find one of those. <laughs> if you ever saw a picture of it, you'd know why. And Admiral Corporation made a Heaney laser in the 60s. I'd love to find one of those, you know, uh, rare nuggets. And then now it's about displaying and demonstrating them and, and uh, finding a real permanent home for the, the collection. So the, the motivation kind of changed over the years. I have to think, too, and I, I don't mean to, to put words or thoughts uh, in your mouth and head, um, but one of the realities with lasers, right, is that they aren't typically a Christmas gift. Maybe they are for you, but not for, for most of us. And so the advances of the technology are gauged in a very commercial way. And that's an important thing to articulate to people. 
you may be showing them and maybe people think they're novelty items, but they're really important pieces of equipment. How do you articulate that to people? Well, they never were a consumer product, really. So they don't have the same presence in people's minds as computers does, for instance, or radios or clocks. But they, there are cat toys, uh, you know, they've been on <laughs> yeah. the market for 30 yep. years. And laser levels, people buy laser levels in uh, a Home Depot. Uh, uh, there's distance measurement lasers. There's telescope alignment lasers, uh, gun sights. Well, these are all things that people buy as products and interact with the actual beam itself. There's also laser light show projectors and uh, holiday lighting things now that are projecting laser beams. So that's those are consumer products that people interact with. But then there's also um, uh, all the applications that people encounter lasers at work. You know, everything from construction lasers, you know, drilling and engraving, uh, welding, uh, 3D printers using lasers in them. Uh, you know, now there's videos on YouTube of rust removal lasers that are really dramatic. Can't wait to get my hands on one of those and build a demonstration so you can actually demonstrate that happening. Very dramatic. And there's also holography, uh, a big application of uh, lasers. Well, holography and lasers in general in science fiction have captured the public imagination uh, since the beginning. Uh, since Goldfinger's laser, uh, but they've always been prevented from actually seeing the actual devices because of laser safety issues and all that, uh, the high voltages and stuff. So nobody ever really got to see under the cover of the laser. So I, that's part of my goal here is to is to uh, uh, take the covers off so that people can see what they looked like in the 60s and 70s and all the way up to today. Uh, That's the other yeah. thing. I mean, these are uh, th- these are extravagant, but also dangerous devices. Is, you know, does that come yeah. into play ever with you? <laughs> well, it do- well, it doesn't. I mean, I have a working holography lab in the in the exhibit space here. You know, it's all enclosed and everything, so it's safe. And uh, I don't operate the lasers in general in the exhibit for public because of the laser safety issues. But then again, people can buy, you know, handheld battery operated laser pointers now that put out over two watts of laser light that are are really dangerous. So another goal of the exhibit is educating people as to how to handle laser light safely. The jump from collection to a fully formed exhibit is considerable. There has to be a degree of public interest to make such a leap and there are logistical challenges to moving 500 lasers and 600 holograms. Hess has accrued some experience in the transportation of valuable vintage lasers. That will happen when you pride yourself on being a bona fide collector. The other thing that is unavoidable is favoritism. We asked Hess about some of his personal favorites. Without missing a beat, he rattles them off like classic cars, make, model, and anecdote. Well, people have been telling me for years to start a museum and and because of the COVID uh, isolation, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. So I had some small space, uh, about 1,400 square feet in uh, the studio space where I'm making holograms. So I thought I'd move out the uh, storage of stuff and move in my laser exhibit and put up some pictures and labels and open it to the public and see if there is any public interest for such a thing. I call it vintage lasers and holograms because I think holograms uh, make a great side dish for a vintage laser exhibit. Uh, it's enabled by the laser, and uh, there's a lot of buzz now about holographic things and non-holographic things, but all that publicity is good. So 
I, I think it, it, it's good to show the the holograms uh, with the lasers. Uh, so there's about two or three dozen holograms, uh, por uh, pulsed portraits, um, animated holograms. People enjoy seeing. Do you have any favorites? Whether they're 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 on display now or they're not on display, and they're they're tucked away in your uh, in your property. You have thousands of of lasers and components combined. Do you have any uh, personal favorites or, or most meaningful uh, lasers? Well, yeah, there, there, there's so many of them. I mean, I just love them. They're like old cars to me. You know, it's like each one. But uh, a special one is a 1962 model uh, 111 from Perkin Elmer Spectrophysics. It uh, is not their first visible laser, but it's their first large tube visible laser, uh, CW, Heaney. It's the first one, uh, old laser I bought in the mid 80s. I bought the head because it had the model number 111. And I thought that was cool. And it, and it was Perkin Elmer and Spectrophys. And I thought that was, it's got to be special. But I never, and I dragged it around, but I never looked it up or didn't know really what it was. Uh, until I started researching lasers, you know, more recently. But the funny thing is, is that 30 years after I bought that, I bought the power supply that was mated to it from uh, Bob Arkin at Spectra, uh, Holo Spectra. So that's a special one to me because it's the power supply and the header are mated again. Uh, another one is a mid-60s Carson uh, Labs Model 200 Argon Ion Laser super rare company that made lasers in the on the east coast and um, they were the first company to make a an argon laser or an ion laser with a ceramic plasma tube and a special feature was this viewing port uh, where you can see a little indicator that goes up and down as you adjust the mirror position and uh, you've never seen that feature on any other laser since so it's a really special um, little features on lasers like that that I really like with the old ones. And then a third one would be the 1978 Model 950 CO2 laser from GTE Sylvania. I bought that from Dick Anderson in Ohio. I was there in like 2017, uh, rummaging through, looking for old lasers, saw that, bought it because it had the uh, adjuster that I don't have on another one. And I took it home and I was at my mom's house and uh, outside of Chicago and I took the cover off and lo and behold inside the cover was a business card with my name on it <laughs> from uh, when I worked at Spectrophysics my first laser job in 1982 uh, was building the uh, old line of uh, CO2 lasers from Sylvania the Spectrophysics had bought and continued and so my first job was processing and building uh, plasma tubes and refurbishing those heads so here it is uh, you know 35 years later, and I encounter one of my first laser tubes uh, from my first job. Like uh, reconnected with yourself. Yeah, yeah, it was just <laughs> great. And I found that out when I was at my mom's, you know, and she's in her 90s, so it was a special thing. Yeah. So you've named some names here. Uh, tell me a little bit about the laser collecting community. Is there such a thing, um, either globally or internationally? There's probably about a dozen that I'm aware of that have more than a dozen lasers, but generally less than 20. And uh, of course, there's a laser processing guys that have been in the business and they have walls full of lasers, especially the big ion lasers. But, you know, there's not much use for big ion lasers these days like that. Uh, so those are gathering dust. And then there's probably a few dozen people who have a few lasers each spread around you know, the world.
A byproduct of there being only a select few collectors of lasers and laser materials is the absence of established strategies for housing some of the world's most intricate and expensive lasers. That's a consideration when you have 500 lasers or more in your possession and a deep love of the technology. It's tough to find the momentum to move in that direction alone, and Hess says the public interest he's cultivated so far is encouraging. The addition of holograms to the exhibit has been similarly well-received. Like lasers, holograms too face this reality. Not many have seen one close enough to set them on the path of a collector. The people who have come through the exhibit respond as much or more to the holograms. Holograms had some presence in malls and shops in the 80s, but those don't exist anymore, and they never really made it to fad status. So if you pull out a nice big holographic portrait of somebody, even if it was made in the 90s, most people have never seen anything like that. You know, the, the real magical presence of a hologram is still overwhelming to a lot of people. Uh, so that draws a, a lot of interest. We talked a little bit earlier about the uh, the community or maybe the lack thereof, a vintage laser and hologram community. And I know you've talked with the Smithsonian in your past, and there, there, there's always something in the works, either on paper or, or not yet in that stage. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the exhibiting culture here, at least in this country? Because there really isn't a, a dedicated space for lasers, perhaps, other than the one that you've managed to uh, create here. Well, there's two issues, really, there. It's holograms and lasers, uh, from my perspective. Uh, there's never been a laser museum, per se. The Smithsonian has a large collection, relatively large. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, all they relative. don't really exhibit it as such. And the Deutsches Museum uh, has a collection, and they're expanding their collection of uh, quantum optics. And so they're looking to gather uh, lasers. Uh, so they're actively seeking old lasers to put into their new exhibit. That's encouraging. And I've spoken to a few people who have shown interest, but I really haven't pursued it on a serious level. And the same is true with holography. Uh, there, were, there was a museum of holography in the 70s and 80s that closed in the 90s in New York. Their collection is now at the MIT Museum, but again, not on display, it's just stored. Uh, there was a museum of holography in Chicago that closed after many years, and uh, their collection is pretty much gone to the wind. I mean, it's few people out there have them, but there's a need to store and uh, preserve the holograms from the same period. So I think that they're both uh, needed, and I'm heading in that direction, I think. The exhibit, entitled Vintage Lasers and Holograms, is based on the collection of Bob Hess and is hosted by Satori Optics LLC at the Baseline Business Park in Tempe, Arizona. It's on now and is likely to be extended for another year into 2023. Information at laserhistorymuseum.com It's time for the Luminary Minute a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. This episode will look at Denis Gabor. The Hungarian-British scientist is best known as the inventor of holography. The early principles of holography were actually developed as an attempt to solve spherical aberrations of the magnetic lenses of electron microscopes. Gabor approached this with a two-step process. The first step was to record the interference pattern between the coherent electron beam and the coherent background onto a photographic plate. In the second step, the interference pattern, which Gabor dubbed the hologram, is illuminated with visible light. 
thereby reconstructing the original wavefront and correcting the aberrations of electron optics. In his Nobel lecture in 1971, Gabor lamented that he and his team came upon holography 20 years too early, noting the rapid developments in the field after the introduction of the laser, particularly helium-neon lasers. Holograms as we now know them, the 3D-looking images on two-dimensional media, didn't come about until after the invention of the laser, which significantly improved the quality of the images obtained by the method. Gabor had originally used a mercury arc lamp with a narrowband green filter, which at the time was one of the best coherent light sources. The phrase, make your job your own, is tossed around a lot. We can't say for sure whether Pearl John has ever heard that phrase, but there's no disputing that she has done just that. As a result, she has one of the most interesting photonics jobs we come across. John is an artist working with the medium of holography. In that arena alone, she is quite accomplished, exhibiting her work in esteemed locales and maintaining her status as one of the photonics community's leading representatives of the medium. John also heads public engagement and outreach initiatives in physics at the University of Southampton. That and her work in holography give her the truly distinguishing title you'll hear in a moment. It goes without saying that John's path to such a professional existence is one of a kind. Her work on both sides of the Atlantic has led to her current role at Southampton, which is one of the leading institutions for physics and photonics research in Europe. We caught up with John to discuss her journey and her work with outreach and education, as well as holography. How those two come together is a defining trait of John's identity within the photonics industry. Here again is Jake Saltzman. Well, my um, official job title is Public Engagement Leader in Physics and Astronomy at the university. And I do many different things within that role. So I engage the public with the research of the department. And I'm also trying to encourage more students to um, come and study at the university and study physics generally. But within the role, I've got a wide latitude. So I've just received a small grant to do my artwork, to make holograms, to engage the public with black hole research. So I'll be making holograms inspired by research. And um, I was lucky to get the job. I came back from, I'd been teaching laser technology in Missouri and saw the Light Express Roadshow, which was a traveling laser light show, and contacted the organizers and the professor in charge of it said that uh, they were soon to be looking for a new coordinator and would I be interested in applying for the position? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to be back in the country in the UK for another six months. So would you wait? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said, because it's my job. I can tell you it's, it's clearly my job because I was specializing in photonics education for 15 and 16 year olds, which was exactly the audience that the yeah. laser show was aimed at. And um, so they kindly delayed and I applied for it and interviewed. And I think they were impressed that I thought that I was going to have to be working very independently. Yeah. So, so it was a nine-month position, and I tried to make myself indispensable by um, doing holography workshops as well and just um, have wangled my way in and stayed there ever since. You're highlighting for us two very distinct aspects of this. One is holography is an art form, which has certainly been a theme in your life. But the other is this you know, great 
topic, technology in photonics, right? We cover holography here in, in publications, but there are implications for, for many different technologies, right? So as you are carving your path in holography, are you keeping that in mind, you know, the artist on one half, but also the photonics professional, dare I say, on the other? I think it was um, a matter of survival, really. I, I guess whenever I show um, somebody a hologram and they've never seen holography before, the, the first question is, how did you make that? How on earth does that bit of magic work? And so I became, I think as everybody who makes holograms does, there's, there's an element in built into it of science communication. And you have to gauge who you're talking to. You have to refer to that audience member as to how much information do they really want to know? Do they want the one line of explanation? Do they want the 30 seconds or the full two or three weeks? <laughs> um, so um, my understanding of the technology grew and my ability to communicate, uh, be a science communicator, grew from that need to explain what I was doing in response to audience questions. So I learned as much as I needed to know about the medium and then realized over time that the skills that I had were valuable in a larger context. And that was in the context of um, the photonics industry, the need for a pipeline of, of educated people to go through school and into the photonics industry. You know, it might be a good thing because I can put you on the spot. You're here with me now. I'd like to hear that 30-second explanation if you don't mind giving it because I'm, it's a hard thing to do in, in two or three weeks. So I, I want to hear the 30-second if you don't mind. Yeah. I would still, I'd still need to know further. I'd ask you, well, what's your science background? Um, because if I launch into describing constructive and destructive interference, um, I'm going to get a blank look from somebody <laughs> who's only got, a, you know, the level of a 14 or 15 year old in science. So I would usually start from a very low basis in terms of physics content by saying, well, I make holograms with a laser. It's somewhat similar process to photography in that I have a light sensitive material, my holographic plate or film, and I'm going to capture the light that's reflected off an object into a holographic plate, which I then develop almost as if it was an old photograph in a dark room. And then I can go into, well, I'm, I'm going to use um, green safe, it, depending on the, the color of laser mm -hmm. will depend on the color of safe light. So I, there are many ways of explaining it. And it 100% revolves around the person who I'm talking to. What do they need to know in that context? That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings@photonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.